failure is actually where all the information is, right? Everything we need to know about ourselves, about our business, about our goals, life objectives. It's all in the experience of failure. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Authentic, the only podcast that teaches you how to build a bridge to the life you want from the life you have using human design, the gene keys, and the work. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get started. Hi, welcome back to To Be Authentic. I'm your host, Stacey Estrella. And today we are going to be talking about the F word with Marcus Hayes, one of my favorite people in the world. And I just want to give a little bit of context about what this conversation will be. Um, We've left it pretty loose. It's very unscripted. But what's interesting is, as you all know, I'm here to talk about human design, the gene keys, and the work. Marcus is not a practitioner of human design. He's not living it in in full awareness. Um, And that's why I think it's really interesting to see how he's living his life and how it matches up. And uh, the way that this all came to be, as you know, when I first saw the power of human design for me, I then brought it into my business partner, Tara, and we started using it to see why is it that we are able to generate such great results with just the two of us. We call them the quantum results, right, of just two people. Once we started to see how our designs aligned, that was when we thought, okay, there's something really interesting here. Let's start to bring this into our work with our clients at Humanifesto Studios, which is our storytelling studio. And Marcus was one of the first clients that we did this with. And this relationship has has become one of the deepest, most impactful, and potentially most consequential business alliances I have ever had. And it's founded on a couple of things. The first is this very, very deep respect for our respective blind spots and what we uniquely bring to the table. And downright awe when all of our designs come together to work on a problem. And when I say all of our designs, um, I'm talking about Marcus and one of his key people and me and my key person, Tara. Marcus, as I mentioned, isn't a human design junkie. He doesn't knowingly practice it the way that I do, but I wanted to feature him because he's an example of someone who is living much of his design intuitively. The soul wants what the soul wants. It knows why it's here. And it is going to keep nagging you and pushing you and pulling you onto the journey that is to be your life path. So I wanted to feature Marcus because he is an example of someone who is living much of his design intuitively. And I think sometimes people are a little resistant to enter the world of human design because they feel like they might have to let go of what they love most about who they are or how they are. We know intuitively who we are and why we're here. What I've seen mostly when people meet their human design is there's a great amount of relief and celebration. Let me tell you a little bit about Marcus before we we let him start to share. So Marcus Hayes is at the helm of what may be one of the most game-changing, pivotal technologies in the electric vehicle space. He is the founder and CEO of Orbis Electric. He's a car guy, okay, from his earliest memories, which he might indulge us and share some of those. He's also an inventor and an industrial designer. 
and he has labored for decades around a single quest, saving the air by combating exhaust fumes, saving the planet by ensuring that he's focused on the lightest manufacturing and operating footprint, and doing all of this with deep devotion to aesthetics. He is, to my mind, he is the Steve Jobs of EVs, okay? It can't just be functional. It must be beautiful. The other thing that I think is really interesting about Marcus, and especially in the context of his most recent hires, his chief brand officer, as well as his partnership with Humanifesto Studios, me and Tara, he is this incredibly balanced yin and yang. He's a Navy guy, okay? So he's unafraid of fighting in the trenches, but he also studied at Art Center College of Design in Southern California. So he's got both this yin and yang thing going, this masculine and this feminine. So when I invited Marcus onto the show, what he really wanted to talk about was failure. And I think it's a really powerful topic because so many of us are weighed down by decisions that we think led to outcomes we didn't want and what we've labeled mistakes. And what if they aren't? So Marcus, welcome. I'm so happy that you are here to share a point of view that's so personal. And I'm certain it's going to resonate with a lot of listeners. It is one of these taboo topics that we don't talk about freely and openly. It seems to only be talked about against the background of a really sensational success. And I really am excited to hear the journey you're going to take us on today. So welcome. Stacy. it's a, a, a true privilege and honor to be with you on your podcast. I'm so excited about what you're doing and your vision and um, how you're going to take this forward into the world. So uh, such a pleasure to be able to talk and speak with you about um, my favorite topic, actually, which is, as you say, the F word and um, defined here by the word failure. So in the midst of all the success, it's also an opportunity to sort of reflect on how we get two places and the importance of acknowledging that failure is a part of the journey or it should be. And I think that's really the operative sort of concept here is failure. We should accept failure and appreciate it ultimately. So thank you. So I think it would be really great if you could give us, give people the context of this quest you've been on, because I really think of you as one of the most intrepid, persevering, will not let go of this dream to do something positive, to rescue the planet, <laughs> basically, from all of the human-caused suffering, at least in the area of exhaust. Well, yes. I mean, I, I will say that, um, that like all of us, you know, there are people in our lives who, who shape our lives. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate to have mentors who are acknowledged visionaries in, in many, many circles and who inspired me to want to um, 
be in the space of working on um, mitigating, reducing, ideally, uh, carbon dioxide emissions, right? So, so it's something that we all have to be doing. Um, and the question is, you know, can we scale it, right? The job of a business is to scale. And so that is my uh, central personal and professional mission is to scale carbon emissions reduction and to to make it a business in the process, right? That's the tricky part. I mean, it's easy to make money. The question is, can you make money doing less of something? And that that is where um, we all struggle, I think, and have to work harder. Yeah, it's really daunting, exciting, and terrifying all at the same time to be looking at the pace at which climate change is roiling Earth, as we are seeing, and you know, the call to, to action, which visionary scientists have been pushing the emergency button for as long as I've been in the field, this topic has been central to most scientists. And here we are confronted now by the reality that had been predicted many, 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 well, several decades ago. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of terrifying. And the question is, can we catch up? So it's sort of interesting to think about what is failure and and failure, we know societies fail. Um, now we're talking about human history uh, on a global scale. Can we succeed? Can we work somehow together, collectively, collaboratively, to solve a problem that that isn't going to go away unless lots of people are doing it? So, so in my case, um, I feel a great sense of duty. Uh, probably, as you referenced in my background, I have military service in my background because I've always sort of felt a call to duty. But I feel a duty to uh, use my brain and the tool sets that I have been fortunate enough to be given uh, to apply those in ways that counterbalance, you know, what what is terrifyingly and, and sort of you can wake up in the morning terrified by a sense of inevitability, right? How are we going to change this climate? The answer is by doing what we do differently. You know? So so we just have to take small course corrections and trust that there are technologies that can be deployed, will be deployed, assuming we don't give up, right? And I think that speaks to failure on a personal level. Failure is sort of a giving up, right? We just quit. And so we can quit as a society or quit as individuals. And when we quit as individuals, forget it. We don't have any chance. If we just give up, there's no chance of anything. So, so the question is, how do you reconcile failure? This is a question to myself that I've been asking myself for a long time. How do we reconcile the experience of failure against societal definitions of success and understand that, that failure is actually where all the information is, right? Everything we need to know about ourselves, about our business, about our goals, life objectives, it's all in the experience of failure. And so I think what troubles me is that people run from failure. And what I would and have the great sort of appreciation for you allowing me to talk about this subject is that I want to suggest to people that that failure really isn't a bad thing. It's an opportunity. Okay. So Marcus, I love what you just said. 
And I'd love for you to put it in context of the journey you've been on with Orbis Electric. If you could tell listeners, what is the technology that you have available that, that is going to change the world? And what are some of the key moments or failures on your journey to get here that helped you get here? And why? What did you get from those experiences? Well, there are so many, and I'll just start with the vision for Orbis Electric. As you also mentioned at the top, I have a background in design and studied automobile design. I'm a car guy. I just grew up breathing cars, love car design, always imagined myself being a car designer. And so when I finally got the opportunity to study car design, about two years into my car design education, I came to the conclusion I was working a completely useless occupation, <laughs> which sucked. It took three years to get into that stupid school. And I have this moment where I think, what a useless occupation, because at that time, this is the 90s, early 90s, and, and we're being called to design exotic cars. And for some reason, living in Los Angeles at the time and not being able to see the tops of the buildings because of the smog and being a car practitioner of car design, I was like, you know, the world doesn't need more cars, right? What is it the world needs? Well, it was pretty obvious that because we were choking on our air, uh, clean air could be a better course of action. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time when the state of California initiated something called the zero emission vehicle mandate because of how choked our air quality was with automobile exhaust. And the opportunity was to redirect into designing electric vehicles. So uh, I started working on a, a hybrid taxi cab. This was in 1991, I think, before the Toyota Prius. We were sort of contemplating how to make vehicles less polluting. And out of the blue, I got a call from someone who said, hey, we're forming an incubator. The state of California is sponsoring an incubator called CalStart, and we'd like you to join. We saw this taxi cab thing you're working on. I said, well, what's an incubator? <laughs> anyway, I went to the incubator, fell in love with this idea of, holy shit, we can show up in here and just make stuff. And by making stuff, instead of designing stuff, maybe we can really start fixing things sooner. And so that was by that time, it was 1995, I think. And, and the state of California's mandate was that by the year 2003, we were going to have to have 10% of all road going cars were going to be electric. So that was 1995, 10% of road going cars to, you know, with electric. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Anyway, so here I am realizing I had embarked on a completely useless occupation and the call to action now was to apply my, my intellect, design sensibility into things that would maybe not be as harmful, okay? Because there's no way we can make stuff that isn't ultimately going to have some emission or waste or byproduct. The question is, can you make something that is essentially neutral, right? How do you make something and that was my call to action. And, and so in this process of working in the incubator and elsewhere, I got connected up with a true visionary named Paul McCready, Dr. McCready, who uh, at the time was uh, leading the development of the GM EV1, the first electric car. And uh, Paul, just an amazing human being, won the Kremer Prize. He uh, made a human-powered airplane that flew across the English Channel, among other things. So becoming mentored by Paul was one of the great moments of my life. 
and uh, buying into Paul's vision for a cleaner world, a more balanced world was um, essentially a call to action, right? So that for me became a departure into another aspect of Paul's vision, which included electric bikes. So then the electric bike journey began. But in all of that, Paul shared in confidence with me, which I'm still not going to share, but ultimately Paul shared with me all of the things that were going on in the background with General Motors and the creation of the EV1 and how programs and some often are, are actually window dressing with manipulation that is fundamentally about creating failure. So the EV1 is a story of a tragedy for us all, for the company, et cetera. So another instance of failure, that one was a program design failure and um, left lots of people pretty bitter and sad. And as we know, there's a movie, the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car, that tells part of the story, but the, the rest of the story is also very dramatic. Anyway, so, so useless occupation, designing electric vehicles was my new embrace. And I just thought, you know what? I am just going to do this no matter what, because we need this. And then the question became, can we make a, um, a vehicle that is carbon neutral? So as a product designer, designer, I love design. I love anything that's design related, but inherently that is deep consumerism, right? And the problem with deep consumerism is it's really polluting. So there's this constant inner battle going on inside of me around what is the role of designer in society? And so ultimately, Stacy, I mean, it really became a scenario where working with some of my art center alums uh, on various car design, electric car design projects going back, as I mentioned, to the 90s, one thing became abundantly clear in our group of designers, I was the only one that had any business sense. <laughs> so I don't know where I got the business sense. My parents were academics. I don't know where I got the business sense, but it was clear to me that if we were going to build an electric car, I was not going to be able to do what I wanted, which was the design. And then I was going to have to go out and be the business guy and let the designer guys, you know, do their thing. So to keep the organization working, I became the de facto leader of the team to go out and raise money. And, and from that point forward, I entered this world of snake oil salesmen, largely men selling bullshit regarding, you know, how they were going to save the planet and stealing shareholder money. So that was sort of the eye-opening transition from designer guy, visionary to, oh shit, here's reality. And people are just stealing. Great. Perfect. That's just what we want for our transition to clean air, people stealing. Well, the ultimate piece for Orbis Electric was this aspect of Steve Jobs, right? I wish Steve was still around. We need Steve to help us counterbalance some of the other bullshit. But the legacy of Steve on the design side is you've got to strip everything out that isn't absolutely necessary. Strip everything out that isn't absolutely necessary. And so in all of these aspects of designing stuff that were intended to be carbon neutral, I kept going and I kept going and I kept stripping out and stripping out and stripping out and stripping out and stripping out. And finally, in Orbis Electric, I had this aha moment, which was, holy shit, there are already a billion vehicles on Earth spewing emissions. There are going to be another billion added to that, apparently. So by 2050, 2.4 billion vehicles spewing emissions. So the aha moment was, holy shit, stop designing, 
stop building shit, stop making shit. You're not going to make anything that is going to be worth a damn because you can't, because we have to go into subtraction phase, subtraction phase. It's not adding. You can't add. Everything has to be subtraction. So, so the aha moment finally was take what we have, make it better and see if you can steer the big freighter gradually off of its direction, which is currently going over a waterfall into the abyss. You know, see if you can turn it around and steer it back from the abyss into something rational. And so Orbis Electric came to my understanding through you, right? You crystallized that vision in a way that had been missing for me. So you were absolutely crucial in this point of recognition that stripping down to absolute bare essential means taking what we have and making it better. Can you describe what it is that you have, the car without the parts? Yeah. So, you know, the 27 years in electric vehicles later, there was a point where I was wondering if I would live to see an electric vehicle actually make it into the world. And through Elon Musk, you know, to his credit, he was able to do what nobody else did, which was bring a, a mass production electric vehicle to market. Um, yay. Okay, great. That's awesome. I want to contribute too. So I won't deny that there were points when I felt envious of his accomplishment because I had started much earlier than he did. And I'd been committed to it in my soul forever. And I thought, oh boy, great. Not only am I not going to live to see the day, I'm not actually going to be able to contribute much. You know? Anyway, so we, uh, in those years of looking at electric vehicles, the aha moment I had, not only about repurposing things that already exist, but the aha moment I had was we have had the internal combustion engine in our midst for, you know, 140 years. Okay. Internal combustion engines, interestingly, were invented 25 years before the discovery of oil as a commodity. 25 years, right? So you got you have the internal combustion engine and then 25 years later, here comes oil yeah. as, a, as a commodity scale thing. I mean, think about all those internal combustion engine inventors that never lived to see oil as a commodity. Right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, anyway, the process of invention. So in this deep analysis of stripping down, stripping down, stripping down, stripping down, what don't we need? Jettison it. You know, it should go overboard, go overboard, throw it overboard, maybe turn off, throw it overboard. I realized that every single electric vehicle, except for Orbis Electric, uses legacy internal combustion engine architecture because that's what we know. So we just keep recreating the same things, except we substitute an engine for a motor, substitute a gas tank for a battery, and we call it something new and marvelous. It's not tragically, even though, like I said, hats off to Elon, but all it is is just regurgitated internal combustion architecture. So what Orbis did to my credit and the credit of my team is we said, look, electric motors have a characteristic that is different. Physics are different from internal combustion. And if you just put an electric motor where the internal combustion engine used to be, you're actually penalizing it in all sorts of ways. Put it in the wheel. Just put the motor in the wheel because that's where the work is. Uh, you need this thing to roll. Put the motor right where it can do its most good and jettison all the rest of that crap, right? Because that's all internal combustion engine era legacy that goes back to 18, what, 1860, 1850. I don't know. Somebody was tinkering with a thing that was belching oil and gas in the Victorian era, right? So we're using Victorian era technology kidding me in the age of technology so i felt like okay somebody has to stick their neck out here 
and do something about this problem. And so we, I, I believe we've solved the twofold. One is we're making far more efficient, far more cost effective, and ultimately not making the vehicle. Other people can do that. Uh, but we're going to do the most efficient thing, which is motor in a wheel, put it on something that already exists, and let it be a solution for carbon emissions. And it is. We have definitively arrived at an intersection where we know we can move carbon emissions downward by retrofitting existing vehicles uh, with our in-wheel technology. And we can do it in about three hours, by the way. So we don't have to modify the vehicle. We don't have to weld. We don't have to fabricate. Drive into, as you um, provided the vision for, drive into a Jiffy Lube. That's your credit use, Stacey. Drive into a Jiffy Lube. Three hours later, you got a fuel savings, emission savings hybrid. So that's what Orbis Electric is. We are stripped down, simple solution, not just for carbon emissions, but prosperity. The amount of money that people spend on automobiles, maintaining automobiles, gas, it's shockingly high. So what we're doing will bring prosperity to people who need it most. People in the emerging markets, people in the middle of America, people who are hardworking souls of the universe who need to keep as much money as they possibly can in their own pockets. That's the other thing we touch on. So prosperity, emissions. Is there more? I don't think there has to be more. Prosperity and emissions. <laughs> that is so inspiring. I don't even have words for it. I was taking notes while you were talking because I was looking at your human design chart. Because again, that's what this podcast is about. And it's to help people see what's going on. Why do we do the things that we do, <laughs> right? Why does my soul want to go this way and yet the world is going that way? Because this to me, for the humble inventor, that's got to be one of the most painful realities. Like you have been on a journey while others are getting credit and yet here you are, this purist in terms of how you're approaching this problem, the notion of the subtracting, that we're at a place now where we have to subtract, revolutionary, okay? And I just wanted to point out a couple of things in your chart, because I know we've gone over your chart lightly in terms of when we were working together mm -hmm. on the strategy and the fundraising and all of that. My goal was just to make sure that we had a working language where you understood how I was built and I understood how you were built and we understood how Chance was built and Tara was built and what happened when all of our unique talents came together. So we haven't talked really about it much since then. But the things I wanted to point out that were really interesting from your story is you are an emotional manifesting generator. So this to me is a very fascinating type. You've got this sacral part of you that follows what it's responding to. So, and that's what has been driving you all these years. You are responding to the challenges that light you up, the problems that you want to solve. Your decision-making authority though, like knowing when to make this or that move, knowing when to raise money or not, knowing when to whatever um, is your solar plexus. And so you have to wait for clarity that you recognize only through the stillness in your physicality, in your body, where you know the decision is correct, right? It's not intellectual. You are this serial inventor. You've got this channel that we at uh, To Be Authentic are coming up with some some new language that we think is going to be very accessible, more accessible to people. We call your channel this, it's the creator channel and it's the channel of mating is the traditional name, but mating is not just about procreating human creatures, right? In your life, you have been producing offspring all your life 
but your offspring are called, you know, products, engineering, you know, these things that solve problems, right? The other thing that I think is really interesting about your design is you have the, and I think you've forgotten this, you have what's called traditionally the money line. Well, our name that we're using for that in terms of a metaphor or archetype is the rainmaker. And so when you were saying, gosh, you know, like nobody else knew how to, that this was going to be about business. And I, I was the only one who seemed to figure out if I want to keep producing this stuff, I need to find money to allow me to do it, to solve these really important, really big problems. And then the, the other thing I would just want to point out is, and I really hope that people have a chance to go to your website and we'll put links in the show notes, but everything you have Thank ever you. done from the, is it called the picycle? I think it's the picycle, the, the bike that's in mm-hmm. the museum. You can mention yes, that. Bicycle. The picycle. These mm-hmm. automotive parts, this in-wheel motor is exquisite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's beautiful. And you have this gate off of the throat, which is part of what we're calling the romantic. It's about beauty. It's about expression. It's about song. It's about words. And I feel like that's been such a part of who you are and how you operate through your invention. You can't not make your industrial designs beautiful. It's not in you. For you, it has to be both functional and beautiful, which is, again, why I go back to, you know, Steve Jobs. Like he built the very, very same way, but solving different problems, right? The other part, I, I want to bring this back to your your recent hires and your hiring of your chief brand officer, because I think that was a real turning point for you in your business. Mm-hmm. When I looked at yours and Chance's human design body graphs together, you have this wonderful yin and yang quality. So yes, you have this rainmaker quality. You've got, you're the inventor, all of that. But Chance has this one channel. Um, she's also a manifesting generator, mm-hmm. but she uh, has this one channel that we're calling the pragmatist, right? So she's the one mm-hmm. who's like, okay, this is all well and good, right? All these things, but we got to get dun, 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 like these things done, right? And she's so good at that execution, right, of all the rest of it. And so I feel like that was a part that was missing for you. And then what was interesting is it was chance that said, okay, part of that pragmatism, we need someone to help us tell our story, right? Because what we're working with is not is not doing it, right? And we're spending way too much time trying to tell it ourselves. And sure. that's when we entered the picture. The people who have qualities that we don't, And we allow them to lean into those qualities instead of envying them or trying to be what we're not. This is where quantum happens, right? This is where we become so much more than the sum of our parts. Tara and I are more than the sum of our parts. You and Chance are more than the sum of your parts. The four of us together are more than the sum of all of our parts. And I just wanted to bring to light just some of the elements about your story, how you operate, where you've been on your own and now where you are having allied yourself with some really key parts in terms of the people that you've invited into your life on this journey, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the uh, best thing that has happened to our company has been uh, starting with chance, but bringing uh, you and Tara Humanifesto aboard. So um, in both instances, uh, entrepreneurially, I had no idea where the money was going to come from to do either 
of those very necessary things. All I knew is that it had to happen and that I made essentially an offer to chance that was beyond any reasonable grasp of resources to be able to meet her very reasonable salary requirements, but in the context of a pre-revenue company, uh, daunting. And that was three years ago. So I don't know where the money came from. <laughs> it did. It manifested. And so every dollar that we have allocated to the um, framing, if you will, of who and what Orbis Electric is and what we do is you know, 100x, 1,000x. I mean, by the time we're done, you know, maybe it'll be a million x, quite literally. Maybe it'll be, a, you know, 100 million x. There's no reason why it can't be in terms of the value that she and, and you two and others have, have since added. So the challenge for the entrepreneur is to start in a framing of abundance. You cannot show up at the table of your outset of your business vision operating from a place of scarcity. And I grew up in a household where scarcity was a religion and practiced at everyone's enormous daily discomfort. There was not enough heat, there wasn't enough food, there wasn't enough resources. You know, we were on and on and on. It's quite boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> as an entrepreneur, I just would share with everybody daily is reframe, retool, start your brain off from the standpoint of we have all that we need and we need more and whatever money we need or people or resources, we will add those resources. And that's how you grow. It doesn't matter if you don't know where the money is going to come from. Believe that you will get the money because if you add the right team, people, group, technology, the money comes in exponential ways. So, and you have to show up every day believing that. Which leads me now to talk about one of the most profound experiences in the sort of the framing of abundance and scarcity. So I didn't always believe in, in abundance, right? Abundance is something I've come to, but it was born of an experience where I was side by side with Elon Musk and we were both pitching 25 high net worth people. I had an e-bike, this beautiful e-bike you reference, and I call it, I can sort of describe it as beautiful because for me, it was beautiful. It's hanging in a museum. There's one hanging in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. It's part of the permanent collection. I actually went and saw the bike during COVID. It was cool to see my bike hanging with sort of this 150-year history of bikes. Anyway, beautiful bike, great, cool bike. So here's the bike sitting in front of 25 or seven high net worth people. And here's this broken down, non-operable, what looked like a Lotus that was supposedly electrified. And his doors are basically falling off. And here's this guy, Elon, who's telling everybody, we're going to be the most valuable car company in 10 years, but the car doesn't run. Doors are falling off. Janky at its best. Guy's like, yeah, we're going to be the most valuable car in 10 years. I thought, this dude's on drugs. What is he smoking over there? Look, if you go back in the history of automobiles, it took the country, the entire GDP of Japan, to finally get Americans to buy cars. Took them 30 years to do what Elon says he's going to do in 10. And he doesn't have the GDP of Japan. He just has himself and he's out raising money, right? And then it took the Koreans, South Korea, it took them 20 years to do what, what Japan took 30 years to do. And they had the entire resources of South Korea. <laughs> Here's the really funny part. So at the end of the pitch, Elon, Mark says, Elon will never remember me. It's all right. I remember him well. 
the moderator, the host, went around circle and said, okay, so based on what you hear, what's your take? And people were like, well, this electric car thing's kind of interesting, but I love that electric bike. Love the electric bike. Wow. <laughs> okay. So that was, you know, 14, 15 years ago or something. The electric bike company failed and failed miserably. I mean, it took the company down. It took me down. It took me into a state of depression, took me into all sorts of shit, right? Self-recrimination, deep shame, on and on and on. Just, you know, layer it on, layer it on. Meanwhile, here's this guy. And the takeaway, and this is really the, the crucial takeaway for me, and that's why I'm so happy I get to share the experience. The crucial takeaway is Elon believed with every fabric of his being what he was saying. No self-doubt whatsoever. I mean, I grew up in a household with scarcity, self-doubt, shame. Those were stock and trade, daily stock and trade. You know, you're never going to be this. Or you're never going to be that, you know. And so all this messaging that we carry forward in our lives, we take into our world and listening and seeing the outgrowth of that very faithful moment for me. I was like, you know what, whatever my bullshit is, first of all, get rid of it, <laughs> you know, come from a place of abundance and, and believe in myself, first of all, but believe we should all believe in ourselves, first and foremost, with every fabric of our being, because truth matters. And if we don't believe our own truth, we can argue about what Elon's truth is. That's his business, really. But from a business perspective, he believes everything. And there's no doubt in his mind that he's going to accomplish X, Y, or Z, right? No doubt. So is there insanity in that? No, I don't think there's insanity. As long as you're telling the truth, right? As long as what you're representing to call it investors or people around you is based on fact then believe. Marcus, that's a powerful, powerful message. And thank you for sharing that about <laughs> the fate of the bicycle. And I'm curious because the last couple of episodes, actually, I've been talking about the role of conditioning and how all of these messages mm. that we hear growing up, how they limit us and make us small. Because as kids, we don't understand we don't have self-awareness because we don't know the self, really. We're still in that sort of Edenic you know, space that we just came from, right? So we don't have full self-awareness. We experience things that feel icky, but we don't know what that means, right? So we don't know how to talk about it. And those feelings, though, get stored away. And we just know we don't want to feel them again, right? And that's why then they come back to us. So, I'm, mm -hmm. so this that you just brought up is so powerful because somehow you broke through that conditioning of scarcity. And I'm curious if you feel comfortable sharing what was that really? process? Because here's my pet peeve. I've worked with a lot of people who over the years who think, oh, you just have to be more confident. It's like confidence is not a switch that you turn on and off. Neither is abundance thinking. Right. It is much deeper than that. This is why the secret doesn't work for everyone because it's not just about the affirmation, sure. it's about the deep belief and physical right. feeling that you already have it. I can totally relate to everything that you described about when the company was the destruction, it imploded, it, was, it took you down, it took everyone down. Can you talk about how you came back from that? Sure. Because that's a failure, Well, right? Technically. Yeah. It's a so there's good failure and there's bad failure. Let me just say that. So- so good failure is where you recognize that it's failing. Whatever you're doing isn't working, there's failure. Okay, so first and foremost, you gotta just confront it and say, okay, 
I fucked up, I failed, but I'm going to fail well. What does failing well constitute? Well, it requires that you go back to all your people and you say, you know, I'm really, I feel terrible, but I fucked up. And I really miss, I led this business poorly. I led this team poorly. I let myself down. I let you down. I let us all down. And I apologize. So you got to be accountable, take responsibility. Okay. The problem with shame is that when shame enters into the picture, at least for me, what I want to do was hide. And so, so the deep shame that I felt was not obvious to all those people around me because what I, I just went and hid, you know, I just hid. And what I should have done is say, the shame is bullshit. Okay. The shame is just shit I brought with me from my childhood. Uh, failure exists. Failure is part of how our, you know, we, we inter intersect with failure at various junctures professionally, personally. But the, the bottom line is there's no shame in failure. So so that's why it's the F word, you know, fuck failure or maybe fuck shame, um, accept failure, confront failure, be accountable for failure, yeah. clean it up, move on. It's amazing how quickly you can move on, right? When you confront it and you're accountable and you apologize and people go, can we invest in you again? We believe in you. That's what happens. And that's yeah. what happened to me. So, so in my failure at Pi, and I went and hid, I lived in shame and I started looking back at, at sort of the decisions I made and where I went wrong, where I led things poorly, blah, 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 et cetera. I was like, okay, I now have to go back and apologize to everyone. So I went back and I apologized to everyone because I needed to be accountable. So somewhat belatedly, I started apologizing. I had a lot of people to apologize to. You know? And some people didn't accept my apology. And some people think, you know, Rightly, I'm a fucking asshole. All right. So there are times, you know, when I have behaved like an asshole. So there's accountability. We all have to be accountable. And what was interesting is I was going back and sort of one by one apologizing to people. People started saying, wow, um, well, what are you doing now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, I'm doing the same thing. I actually invented the wheel for Orbis Electric in Pi, okay, in the Pi Cycle Company. The idea for the Orbis electric wheel was like, holy shit, if I had done the Orbis wheel in Pi, Pi probably wouldn't have failed. The missing component literally in Pi was the Orbis wheel. The problem is, is that even though I went back and apologized to everyone after a couple of years, there had been a loss of confidence, understandably. And so nobody would um, write checks at that moment. But in, in business law, when you invent something within the architecture of a company, the investors, creditors all own it, whatever that is. So I had invented this thing, the Orvis wheel in Pi. And so um, I had a legal and ethical obligation to leave it in Pi, but nobody would put money in Pi. Okay. So the invention, this crucial aspect of my vision for a different, improved future was locked up in this company. Long story short, I had to repay about half a million bucks of money that I'd raised to extricate the invention from PiCycle. Then the investors in PiCycle had to get um, a piece of the pie, pun intended. And so the lawyers who had invested in PiCycle, after two years of paying people back, I had a day job, right? So I was paying people back and shuffling money and getting ready to pay back and trying to rebuild. And so two years of showing everybody and the bank statement showing how I had underwritten the new invention, the lawyers who had lost money in PiCycle said, we'll invest in the new company, we'll restructure it, we'll get all the investors taken care of, and we're going to rebuild this and let you have your vision back. 
So I was like, right on. So I fucked it all up because I spent two years hiding in shame, lost, you know, I lost two years of my life when if I had just confronted at the moment, recognized the failure, pushed the failure lever and said, ladies and gentlemen, we have to start over right now. The track that we're on is, is doomed. Let's push the stop button, recognize we're failing, and then let's regroup together as a group. Let's regroup. And a lot of people would have just continued coming forward with me, but I didn't do it well. So anyway, I wasted two years screwing around in shame, screwing around in failure. And then um, once I got the bills cleaned up and everything, I was able to save the invention and, and to keep moving forward. So there's some practicum in terms of managing business failure and then um, saying fuck you to, um, to failure and recognizing that um, that's just bullshit we're hauling around with us, like a whatever that is. What's the saying? It's a baggage, right? Baggage, get rid of it. So ultimately, you know, we're now on the cusp of this extraordinary thing. I think the other challenge, um, Stacy, is that the thing I took away from Musk, I'm a product guy, right? For me, the value of the product is in the details. There's no way I could show up at a, at a meeting of any kind with something that doesn't run with doors falling off. It's just not in my nature. But Elon, what I learned from that moment with Elon is that thing was a vestige of a vision. It didn't need to run. It didn't matter the doors were falling off. That wasn't what was material to his vision. What was material to his vision was that he was going to have the most valuable car company in the world come hell or high water. And this is how he was going to get there. And how he was going to get there started with a piece of shit car that oh, <laughs> didn't matter to him. Didn't care. So, so that freedom that he had, that he'd given himself to operate, this immense freedom. Whereas me, in my life, car guy, detail guy, I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, I got to have every fucking detail. It's got to be perfect. <laughs> and then I can show up with it. Maybe. Oh, and what color is it? You know, I mean, that shit is stupid. Okay. So anyway. So I now, now I'm, you know, completely stripped down, which is freeing myself from the design completely by not having a design, right? The ultimate Steve Jobs stripped down, which is take what exists, make it better. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's my story. So a couple of really quick observations, again, going back to your chart. So yeah. there are these things called format uh -huh. channels and they're, they're an energy that pervades your entire chart and they, they operate between the sacral and the root energy centers. Well, you have two specifically that have come up several times here. You don't have the channels, you just have gate activations. But if anything is lit up in these format channels, it affects everything in your chart. So one of them is focus, details, attention to details. You can't not be that, okay? You can never show up the way Elon Musk did. You can't. It's not in your nature. And I, I hope that you're not suggesting that you should fight that nature. This is actually what makes you, you, Marcus, right? This is what makes your creations so extraordinary and elegant and simple, okay? This is the Steve Jobs version of the EV, right? The other um, gate that you have is part of the channel of, it's called progress or maturation, and it's really about cycles. So basically the idea behind it is 
You have to be really, really careful when you enter any kind of agreement. So what you did that's interesting, when you when you went back two years later, apologizing, taking ownership, being accountable, this was a way of getting closure and following that entire cycle through so that you would not have to repeat that same sort of agony, that same sort of pain, that same sort of shame. This channel of progress or any gate when they're activated, it's all about beginnings, middles, and endings and honoring them. Otherwise, we have to repeat the shit we don't finish, the shit like to learn the lesson. Yeah, there are extraordinary instances of failure in all facets of human history. And what's so interesting about many of the takeaways is that discoveries are made in failure. So whether it's in the world of invention or technology, uh, the realization of human endeavor, many of the things that we use or take for granted in our daily lives are byproducts literally of failure, okay? And so that's why it's so important to pay attention in failure and to not simply try to run away from it. I think if any of us are operating with shame around failure, then our tendency is going to be to run, right? Or hide, run or hide. And so that's exactly the opposite of what needs to be done. What we need to do is stop, pause and say, okay, wait a minute, this failed. Let's look at it and understand what the ingredients were literally for failure, because somewhere in there, there might be a discovery. And that discovery can be life-changing, profound. It can be world-changing. Look, Bakelite, very famously, Long Island dude, making, mixing chemicals, right? Uh, chemical spill. He comes back a few hours later on his workbench, and there's plastic, for better or worse, right? How would we live without plastic? You know, we, we, it's tragic that, that we can't, actually. But, but, you know, that's how plastic came to be. So... Plenty of examples of that in human uh, endeavor and history. So I do think that we need to slow ourselves down, look deeply inside when we have these experiences, don't run, don't hide, and to literally embrace, well, literally, figuratively embrace the experience of failure because that's where everything that we need is in those moments. And then you go, okay, great. Failure acknowledged, let's proceed to success. What I love about that is that's where the healing is too. So that's where I come from with the human design and Gene Keys and the work of Byron Katie. That's where the healing is when you pause to, to actually hold that failure and that shame and look into it. And where you say, reframe the story, like what's really going on here and is it true, right? I've let yeah. everyone down. Is it true? You don't know until you have those conversations and those conversations become part of your healing and the others potentially, right? Totally. And so I hope that somehow culturally we can get to a place where we can allow people to fail without shaming them on any basis whatsoever. I mean, that is the place in which we should all live, which is failure is part of our existence. There's no shame in it. How can we help people understand there is no shame in this? You know, at this time in human history, it's a crucial moment for everyone to be as productive and contributing as possible because we have a global emergency and we need to be believers in ourselves and our power and our processes. And anything that limits us is a problem for us all, not just that person, but for us all, because we all have to be working. We all have to be rowing in the same direction at this point. You know what I mean? But I don't know if it's just Western culture. I don't know about other cultures. All I know is that defining success and failure in these terms 
that we define them as is such a tragic holdover from some bullshit, you know, from God knows when the fifties, you know, thirties, twenties, maybe it's always been this way in Western society and perhaps Eastern society. I don't know, but if there's anything I can do in addition to the work I'm doing daily, it's to speak about the tragedy really of the way shame can be such a influencing factor on the decision-making people have. What I love about what you said is just now is that if we cannot embrace our shame that comes with failure, and it's, it is part of that failing process, we are blocked from our best ideas, our innovation. Like we would not have Orbis Electric today if you did not come back from your shame. It's kind of interesting. Well, whether it's Orbis Electric or any thing, um, you know, empowerment, self-empowerment is what all that we have in our lives, self-empowerment, right? Where, where are we going to draw from? So if we're not drawing from self, you know, we're not going to get it externally, at least not very long. It sort of props us up when it's external, but it's not sustainable when it's not self-empowerment. So, so you have to draw from self and the way to draw from self is to believe. And the way to believe is to accept all of your fuck ups, which is part of your experience. And hopefully there is a group of people around you who accept you and your fuck ups, because if society accepted us and our fuck ups, then we'd all be so much more successful. But this framing around success and failure, which is bullshit based solely on some God knows business book that was probably written in the thirties. Um, <laughs> the nose, I would just say that, um, as you said, embrace shame. Okay. And accept it, move on, jettison it as, as you know, it's, it's flotsam in a, in a shipwreck and you're all right, great. I'm free of the shame. Now I can resurrect the ship and, and patch it up and keep sailing. Right. And what's interesting is from the conditioning perspective in the outside and relationships, anyone who wants to keep you in that shame story, they go to, <laughs> right? That's part of the jettison. That's Absolutely. part of the Right. It's like if they want to keep it, yeah, they, 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 they go too. Yeah. And so. that can be really hard because that can be parents, right? Who, who have been indoctrinated in the same construction around self-worth and shame and they're locked into it. And the best they can do is just recriminate those around me, recriminating the people around them and not recognizing that, that they're also suffering. You know, it's tragic. Just anyway, so we're going to fix it. That's what we're doing here. We're fixing things, fixing the soul, addressing shame, addressing failure, and solving for climate crisis all at the same time. Yay. Marcus, thank you for sharing your story with us. Listeners, thank you for being here. And we appreciate you every week. We'll have links to... Orbis Electric and some of the references today. You got to see the movie. Uh, what was it? Who built the electric car? What is that one, Marcus? Who killed it? Who killed, Who the, killed electric the electric car? car? We'll put links in the yeah. show notes to that. It's worth a see. It's worth looking into and, and watching. By the way, if I may, um, a link to um, the documentary uh, Gossamer Albatross and Gossamer Condor. That was Paul's Human Power Flight. It's so inspiring. 
And they flew across the English Channel with a bicycle, a airplane bike. Pretty awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you for your inspiration, for bringing you and your stories and really for, for bearing your soul. Like you really shared some raw moments from your own history, your own journey. And there are people who will be inspired by that and maybe feel like they can have the courage to stop hiding in their own lives. And you're giving people a new way to look at whenever they've let themselves down, to look at that with fresh eyes so that they can learn, live and grow from it. Thank you so much. And we'll put in the show notes. Well, thank you, Stacey. And yeah, yep. I mean, I am a champion of what you're doing on every level. And um, I'm so, again, honored to have been invited by you to speak on subjects we both care about. And uh, and I look forward to um, listening to your, your podcast with your cast as it, as it moves forward. Thank you. I love that. Okay. Thank you, listeners. See you next week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of To Be Authentic, where we explore the practical side of human design, the gene keys, and the work in an integrated approach we call the quantum way. If you're new to human design and the gene keys, click the links in our show notes to get your free chart and profile. While you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to receive special offers and invitations and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and your podcast provider of choice to never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. You make this podcast matter.